You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 190, The French Arrive in America. Weeks after the British evacuated Philadelphia, the French fleet arrived in Delaware Bay. On July 6, 1778, Charles-Henri Hector the Comte d'Estaing dropped anchor of his flagship, the Languedoc. The massive ship was armed with 90 cannons and had a crew of over 900 sailors. Passengers aboard the ship included Conrad Alexandre Girard, the new French minister to America, as well as the returning American minister, Silas Dean. Following Dean's recall, the French government had offered Dean accommodation with the French fleet. Congress had demanded Dean return to Philadelphia to answer questions about suspicious financial transactions, mostly lies propagated by fellow commissioner Arthur Lee. French Minister Vergen hoped that Dean's return to America aboard the massive military French vessel, along with a fleet at the side of the new French minister to America, would underscore just how well the French government thought of Dean's diplomatic work and that it would help to impress members of Congress. Upon arrival, though, the French commander, d'Estaing, received word that the British fleet had evacuated to New York. The British ships in New York Harbor were inferior to his fleet of 17 massive ships of war, armed with over 1,000 cannons and supported by nearly 10,000 sailors. Rather than allowing Dean and Girard to make an impressive entry into Philadelphia aboard the French fleet, d'Estaing dropped off his passengers at the shore in Delaware Bay, and then set sail for New York to do battle. Dean and Girard had to make their way to Philadelphia aboard far less impressive local transport ships. Despite the quiet entry, the arrival of the first foreign ambassador in the newly recaptured seat of Congress was cause for celebration. The new French minister, Conrad Alexandre Girard de Ravenel, was a lifelong diplomat. He did not come from nobility. He was the eldest son of the secretary to a French noble family. Girard attended college and studied law at the University of Strasbourg. By 1754, at the age of 24, he had entered diplomatic service. His duties sent him throughout Europe and introduced him to much of the political leadership on the continent. The life of a career diplomat can be delicate and tricky, if not terribly exciting. Gerard developed a good reputation within the diplomatic corps. His career grew along with his responsibilities. During and after the Seven Years' War, he served at the French Embassy at Vienna. Among his duties was ensuring proper protocol during the engagement and marriage of the Austrian Archduchess Marie Antoinette to the Dauphin of France, the future King Louis XVI. After Louis XVI ascended to the throne in 1774, 
the Comte de Vergennes took over French foreign affairs. Vergennes appointed Girard to increasingly important positions within the ministry. The two men developed a close friendship and mutual trust. When Vergennes entered into treaty negotiations with the American delegation, it was Girard who conducted those negotiations. When the time came to send a diplomatic delegation to America, Girard received the appointment as Minister Plenipotentary to America. With France having committed to an alliance with America and war with Britain, the diplomatic tables between France and America had somewhat turned. For the past few years, America had been doing everything in its power to bring France into the war. At the same time, France was kind of comfortable watching events from the sidelines and taking its time to decide whether war was in its best interests. Once it entered the war, France became much more dependent on America to stay in the war. If Britain managed to establish a peace with its colonies, it could then turn its full wrath against France and likely capture many more French colonies. France did not want to be driven deeper into debt, fighting a losing war that it could not well afford. When French officials learned that Britain had repealed many of the laws that had started the rebellion in the first place and had sent a peace commission with real negotiating power to end hostilities, France knew that it would have to make sure that the Continental Congress did not back out of the new Treaty of Alliance and leave France to face Britain alone. Americans were already exhausted from fighting several years of war. They had age-old social, political, and cultural ties to Britain, and a long history of hostility with France. It would not really be hard to imagine the Americans accepting the generous terms offered by London and throwing their new ally under the bus. Girard's mission was to cement the Franco-American alliance. He needed to make sure that the U.S. remained independent and at war with Britain. Despite Girard's decades of diplomatic experience, navigating the political waters of a republic required a different set of skills from those used in Europe. There was no foreign sovereign nor any individual who could set policy for the United States. The Continental Congress was an unstable mix of state representatives who came and went. It was not even clear if all of the states would adhere to the same policies and remain united. A European diplomat would usually be focused on establishing some personal relations with leaders of the foreign power. There was no prior relationship of French nobility who had intermarried with the Americans in order to establish some sort of connection. The U.S. itself had never even received a diplomatic party before. Differences of language, religion, and customs all created potential hazards for France in making this relationship work. Now, despite all those potential problems, Girard arrived in America in Philadelphia, as I said, on July 12, 1778, to find the alliance very strong. The delegates showed no interest in any peace that would return them to colonial status. Girard found that the Americans were still very much willing to fight and needed France's active support if they had any hope of keeping the war going. When the new French minister entered Philadelphia, Congress had only just returned to the city days earlier. It was still cleaning up the mess left by the British, who had left less than a month prior. Philadelphia received the new minister with great enthusiasm. A committee of members of Congress rode out to Chester 
to escort Gerard into the city. An honorary guard of Continental Dragoons accompanied them. They honored him with a 15-gun salute, one for each state, plus the King of France and the King of Spain. In a report written a week later, Gerard told Vergen that people had cheered him from the banks of the Delaware River as he made his way into the city. Once there, members of Congress paid him calls, even before he had presented his credentials to Congress. They invited him to a banquet and celebrated the new alliance between France and the Americans. While receiving a warm welcome, Sherard, of course, had his concerns about the new alliance. His traditional European view was that there was no way these people could govern themselves. At some point, they would either return to British rule or permit the French to rule over them. Perhaps it wouldn't be a blatant colonial relationship, but the Americans were going to need continuing guidance, support, and protection of some European power. The notion of a truly independent United States that could remain neutral in European affairs simply did not seem possible to Girard. Girard sent a series of candid reports back to France. He reported his enthusiastic welcome and the apparent resolve of Americans to remain independent at all costs. At the same time, he noted that some of Congress's best delegates from its first years had left for various reasons, and that their replacements were not really of the same caliber. Girard also made note of the divisions between supporters of George Washington and Horatio Gates, observing that most Northerners generally preferred Gates, while Southerners backed Washington. This, he noted, was a possible source of future rupture between the new Union of States. Girard also mentioned, with regret, that several French officers had taken sides in this dispute. Although his report did not name names, we know that General Conway was a key backer of Gates, while General Lafayette outspokenly supported General Washington. As a diplomat, this concerned Girard, as he did not want France supporting one American faction over another. Backing the wrong faction could prematurely end the alliance. Throughout his tenure in America, Girard remained focused on maintaining that alliance at all costs. He simply could not allow a pro-British faction or a peace faction to seek a negotiated settlement between America and Britain, which would, as I said, leave France to fight a dangerous and undistracted British military. Girard had to make sure the war in America continued. Even an American victory with independence at this time went against French interests. During the first few months in Philadelphia, the Carlisle Commission, which I discussed a few weeks ago, was still trying to negotiate an acceptable peace, one that would permit Britain to focus on France. The commission itself had retreated to New York along with the British Army, but remained hopeful in its mission to end hostilities. Minister Girard worked to ensure that the Americans did not make any sort of settlement with the Carlisle Commission. He strongly advised that Congress should settle for nothing less than full independence, something he was pretty sure Britain would not accept. Most members of Congress did not need much convincing on that point, but Girard had to make sure the situation didn't change. If Britain won a few military victories, American hopes might falter. Assuring the Americans of French military support to help continue the war effort kept American morale high 
and away from talk of any sort of political compromise with Britain. Beyond that, Girard hoped to forge a more durable political alliance between France and the United States. This proved much more frustrating. A great many Americans still distrusted France. While they needed France's assistance in the war effort, France was the traditional enemy of the former British colonists. They viewed the absolute monarchy in France as worse than the constitutional monarchy of Britain. Just because Americans didn't want a closer military alliance with France than they already had, that did not mean they wanted to submit to Britain again either. They wanted no political entanglements. Girard, however, took the reluctance to form a closer political alliance with France as an indication that some faction in Congress wanted to return to a relationship with Britain. Privately, Girard viewed the American experiment in republicanism as doomed. Without a unifying leadership of a monarch, he did not see how the government could remain united. Legislators, who were regularly replaced in office, offered no consistency of policy or alliance. Girard was confident that the American states would eventually fall under either the political control of Britain or France, and he wanted to make sure that it was the latter. Girard would remain in Philadelphia as the French minister for about 15 months, again spending that time helping to establish the new alliance and doing what he could to create more political connections between the two countries. He returned to France in October 1779. For the Americans, the key to the French alliance was the French military. Even before France had signed the Treaties of Alliance and Commerce, Paris had been planning its own military strategy. And one reason France had delayed any sort of alliance was that they had needed a few years to build up the French Navy to a point where it could compete with the British Navy. By 1778, France had a new fleet of warships that it thought was ready to compete with the British. As early as January, French leaders had been organizing a fleet under the Comte d'Estaing to send to America. Admiral d'Estaing, who, as I said, brought Girard to America, was an accomplished officer with connections to the highest offices in the French government. He had only joined the Navy 16 years earlier, in 1762. D'Estaing's father had been a lieutenant general in the French army. The wealthy and powerful family was very close to the crown. D'Estaing and the future King Louis XVI were about the same age and attended school together. They became lifelong friends. At age nine, D'Estaing joined the army as a musketeer. Influential families often helped their young children receive commissions so that they would have some seniority by the time they were actually old enough to do any real military work. By age 16, Destang was a lieutenant. That same year, he married the daughter of a French field marshal. During the War of Austrian Succession, he served as an aide to Field Marshal Maurice de Saxe. Destang did see combat during the war and was wounded in battle. By war's end, he had risen to colonel. After the war, the 20-year-old colonel oversaw a military reform commission that the king had wanted. The commission's goal was to emulate some of the successes of the Prussian army. During the Seven Years' War, Destang wanted to go to serve in Canada under General Montcalm. However, his family discouraged that, 
Instead, they helped him receive a promotion to general with service in India. During the Siege of Madras in 1758, a British attack wounded Destang and left him a prisoner. As a captured general, Destang was held by British Governor George Pigott, brother of British General Robert Pigott, who I've discussed in earlier episodes. As was common for captured officers, Destang received parole and returned to France. While still on parole, Destang took up service as the captain of a privateer ship working for the French East India Company. He spent nearly a year attacking British ships and outposts in India. As he was returning to France, the British captured his ship and imprisoned him in London for violating the terms of his parole. He eventually returned to France near the end of the war. In 1762, Destang received promotion to lieutenant general. He also took a commission as rear admiral in the French Navy that same year. If it seems strange today that one person could hold commands in both the army and the navy, it did at that time too. The king eventually had to remove him from office in the army, leading to his career exclusively in the navy, starting at the rank of admiral. Admiral Destang spent several years as governor-general of the French Leeward Islands in the Caribbean. By 1772, he was naval inspector of France, living in Brest, and by 1777, he was the vice-admiral of the Asian and American Seas. In 1778, even before the treaties with the Americans were made public, Destang organized his fleet at Toulon in preparation for a voyage to America. In April, after the treaties were signed and made public, the fleet departed France. When Destang led the first French fleet to America, he received pretty broad discretion to take advantage of whatever opportunities he found. The general plan was to attack British ships and bases in North America during the summer and fall. Later in the year, after hurricane season had passed, Destang had orders to sail down to the West Indies and look for targets among the British island colonies there. As I said, the French fleet landed in Delaware Bay in early July, where the Admiral learned that the British fleet was in New York Harbor. And after dropping off his VIP charges, Destang sailed his fleet to New York to confront the British. On July 11, 1778, Destang's fleet of 12 ships of the line and five frigates arrived just off Sandy Hook at the southern end of New York Harbor. The remainder of Admiral Howe's fleet in the harbor found itself vastly outgunned and was in no mood for a fight. Howe's fleet had arrived in New York Harbor only two weeks prior. They had returned with the last of the ships from the evacuation of Philadelphia. As soon as Admiral Howe arrived, he received notice from General Clinton that the Army had just fought the Battle of Monmouth and then retreated to Sandy Hook, New Jersey. The Navy then had to ferry the entire army and all of its baggage across the harbor to Manhattan Island, as well as Staten Island and Long Island. They completed all that by July 5th, only six days before the arrival of the French fleet. While sailing from Philadelphia to New York, Admiral Howe had received intelligence that a French fleet under Destang was on its way to America but the British Admiral did not have much more details. 
He did not even know if Destang was headed for Philadelphia, New York, Newport, or Halifax. A few days before the arrival of the French fleet, Hal received word that it had been spotted off the coast of Virginia and then sailed up to the Delaware Bay. Hal had only 12 small frigates and six ships of the line in New York, including his flagship, the Eagle. The outnumbered British scrambled to put their ships into a defensive line off of Sandy Hook, New Jersey. The Army deployed 1,400 men with artillery at Sandy Hook as well. Their biggest fear was that the French would capture Sandy Hook and then force the fleet to withdraw. If they did that, the French would have time to work their way over the sandbar and take New York Harbor. If the French took the harbor, and if the Continentals continued their advance from Monmouth, the British might have to abandon New York entirely and escape to Halifax. And of course, escaping overland meant going through New England, which would be no easy task either. If escape was impossible, and British naval reinforcements did not arrive in time, General Clinton might be looking at the need to surrender his army. This worst-case scenario for the British, of course, never happened. The depth of the water over the sandbar at Sandy Hook would have prevented the two largest French ships from entering the harbor at low tide. The others would have had to enter one at a time and be subject to attack from shore and from the British ships of the line in place to oppose them. Now, a good question you might ask here is, well, okay, you can't enter at low tide. Why not enter at high tide? concern was that no one knew how long a battle might last. The French might find their fleet stuck and unable to withdraw. The risk of losing the fleet for this fight was just not worth it. The French fleet remained outside the harbor for 11 days. During that time, Destang evaluated the situation in the harbor and the British defenses. He also conferred with General Washington via messenger about other options. In the end, they decided the British had a much better defensive position and that they would look for a battle elsewhere. On July 22nd, the French Navy hoisted its sails and moved north toward Newport, Rhode Island. The potential battle for New York was averted and the British breathed a sigh of relief. I'll take up the story of the attack on Newport in a future episode. But before we get to that, next week I'm heading back down to Florida for the Battle of Alligator Bridge. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to Trey Nance, George Davis, and Lewis White for support of this podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. Thanks also to Mike Hager for support at the Robert Morris Circle level. I also appreciate the longtime support of Travis Omps and Chip Brenner. Everyone who can chip in even a few dollars each month really helps to keep this whole thing going. Also thanks to David Bamford, Warren Potter, and Pete Waddell for one-time contributions via PayPal. Everyone who can help cover my costs helps keep this podcast free for everyone else who cannot. Also, if you haven't signed up for my mailing list, you may want to do that. I include a link each week that provides a list of live events related to the American Revolution, many of which are free and viewable online. A special thanks to Tom McAndrew of the Philadelphia American Revolution Roundtable, who does most of the work to assemble this list each week. If you are interested in learning more about the Revolution beyond my ramblings, you'll want to check out this list each week. If you sign up for my mailing list, you'll get a link to that list, as well as my recommended event for each week. So, this week we discuss two important French officials who were key to the Franco-American alliance. Both men would leave America within a couple of years. Conrad Alexandre Girard would return to France in 1779 to be replaced by the Chevalier de Luzerne. Girard returned to France because of health problems. However, he went on to other diplomatic posts in Europe and continued to serve in France during the first year of the French Revolution. He participated at that point in the election of deputies to the Estates General in 1789. However, he did continue to have health problems and died as a result in 1790 at age 60. Admiral Charles-Henri Hector, the Comte d'Estaing, also returned to Europe, but him in 1780. He continued to battle the British Navy in that theater. He also remained active in French politics after the war, briefly serving as Commandant of the National Guard of Versailles after the storming of the Bastille, a position that he held for only one month before turning over that position to Lafayette. Although d'Estaing supported many of the reforms espoused early in the French Revolution, he also remained a close friend and loyal supporter of King Louis XVI. As a result, he was arrested during the Reign of Terror and executed by guillotine. Allegedly, just before his execution, d'Estaing quipped, quote, After my head falls, send it to the British. They will pay a good deal for it. In other words, his execution was only playing into the hands of France's enemies. But all those events were many years in the future. In 1778, France was playing the dangerous game by supporting the American Revolution. They hoped to use it for their advantage by going to war with Britain while Britain was weak and divided. However, part of the war effort included lots of talk about liberty and equality. Some leaders, like Vergen, thought these ideas could be used to strengthen the French throne. Other idealists, like Lafayette, seemed to adopt them wholeheartedly. In the end, the propagation of those ideals contributed to the overthrow of King Louis and his government, and the execution of most of the officials who had promoted them during the American Revolution. 
But in 1778, the American alliance seemed to hold great promise for King Louis's reign and for the future of the French Empire. Men like Girard and D'Estaing were far from idealists. They were trying to take advantage of world affairs for the benefit of France. If you want to read more about this week's topic, then you'll want to check out this week's book recommendation, The Minister from France, Conrad Alexandre Girard, 1729-1790, by Ruth Strong Hudson. This will give you a much more in-depth look at the diplomatic relations of France in the years leading up to and during the American Revolution. Girard is a key player in all of that. The book is not terribly long, just over 300 pages, but it is pretty hard to find. It came out in 1994. Apparently biographies of 18th century French diplomats don't make the bestseller list. The book is actually a self-published work from a PhD thesis that the author, Ms. Hudson, had written decades earlier. Hudson published the work many years later after her husband died in 1994, when she was already 83 years old. Ms. Hudson passed away in 2008 at the age of 97. My online recommendation is another book. This one is a free ebook on archives.org called France and the American Revolution by James Brecht Perkins. Now, this book was published in 1911 and is therefore free of copyright. The author, James Perkins, was actually a member of Congress. He published three books during his lifetime, all about French history. This book was his fourth, published a year after his death in 1910. You can, of course, search for it on archive.org or use the direct link I've provided in the notes for this episode. Look for it under Further Reading at the bottom of the blog episode at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.